Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Two spiritual gifts, the gift of prophecy to foretell to foretell and the gift of tongues. Prophecy is the priority. Tongues is the problem. It was confusing. Corinth was confusing the church. Have you ever been in a situation, maybe at work or even at home, where someone was doing something that was causing disruption for everyone? Most of us would see a situation like that and understand that something had to be done to try to stop the disruption, right? Well, the same thing is true for the church. When someone or something is causing a disruption, something has to be done. It's always coming back to the idea, whether it's the church 2,000 years ago or the church today, what is best for the body of Christ Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. As we enter now our third week in 1 Corinthians 14 in our series entitled Crossroads, Where Your Faith Intersects Your Culture, Pastor Clay has been slowly walking us through the Apostle Paul's focus on two specific spiritual gifts, prophecy and tongues. He's trying to bring them back. Y'all are focusing on this this tongues. Y'all are making this the priority. You're making this about your personal experience. No, it's about about edifying the body. It's about what's best for the body. And, And through that process, God is glorified. That's where he's trying to bring the people to. Last week, we saw clearly that prophecy, proclaiming the truth of God, should be the priority for the church. Today, Pastor Clay is going to show us how the Corinthians' understanding of the spiritual gift of tongues was causing disruption in the church, and something had to be done. Let's dive in. We are continuing on in our series called Crossroads, where your faith intersects your culture, which is a study of first and eventually what will be second uh, Corinthians. By the way, we are going to be breaking. I should say that we are going to be breaking. I just I wasn't going to do this, and then I was, and back and forth. But I finally just perfectly decided I'm going to break First Corinthians, Second Corinthians. We're going to do a little uh, shorter mini series, six seven week series. When we finish in a couple weeks, we we'll finish First Corinthians. We're going to do a series calling Breaking Bad for Good, and we're going to look at a number of subjects on how you get rid of breaking bad habits, breaking bad children, breaking bad. Marriages, I don't know, what is, there's several things in there that, that, that we'll lack. Breaking bad finances, all that kind of stuff. So, about a six or seven week series on that. And then we'll, Lord willing, we'll go back to Second Corinthians and continue uh, Crossroads Part 2 because it's important to understand how Corinth was at this crossroads of the world and how the, these believers there in Corinth are trying to figure out how to do life in the midst of so much lostness. And that sounds eerily similar to what you and I are trying to do in this world? How do, we, how do we do this Christ-like thing in the midst of so much lostness all around us? So we'll come back to that. But today, uh, Lord willing, we're finishing up chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And I, what I want to say at the beginning is that the subject matter discussed today is, is the spiritual gift of tongues and what was being practiced in Corinth. If you were here two weeks ago, we read all the chapter, all 40 verses of the chapter, and we looked at it, and what I want to make clear as we get started as, is this. Those who are come out of, or are part of a, what would be called a Pentecostal or charismatic um, understanding or, or church or background or uh, influence, they are my brothers and sisters in Christ. 
That's what I want you, I just want to hear you say. They, they believe that salvation is by grace through faith and faith alone, just like I believe, just like you believe that. So I want, to, I want you to hear me say that, that Pentecostal, uh, charismatic, anybody that would practice their understanding of, uh, of the gift of tongues is my brother and sister in Christ. We may not agree on this particular area, and, and I'll probably say that a couple times today, that, that my brothers and sisters from the Pentecostal charismatic uh, side of things would not agree with, with, with my interpretation, my understanding of the, of the text. But I just, I, again, I want to say they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I, I want that to be clear. Okay? Okay. Karen said it's okay. Do y'all say it's okay? All right. 1 Corinthians 14, if you have a Bible, you can open it there, electronic version, hard copy, whatever you might have. We walked through the text two weeks ago, gave you a big introduction, we defined some terms, and then last week we spent the entire time uh, on this one statement. We said this, prophecy is the priority. And if you read it with us, if you were here, or if you were to read through it now, it, it doesn't take a, a biblical scholar or the son of a biblical scholar to figure out that prophecy is the priority in 1 Corinthians 14. He's focusing on two spiritual gifts in particular. Remember, spiritual gifts started in chapter 12. He walks through them. He gives a list there. It's not, it's not the total list. There are other, I gave you some of those other places where spiritual gifts show up. But he gives a list. He talks about some of those things. He, 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 and he meshes in the middle, chapter 13, this, this beautiful love chapter and how 13 is connected to 12 and 14, that love has to be the overarching principle of all of our spiritual gifts. And then he moves into chapter 14, and in chapter 14 he focuses on two spiritual gifts, two spiritual gifts, the gift of prophecy to foretell to foretell and the gift of tongues. And he's talk, talking about those two things. And so what is clear in it, though, is prophecy is the priority. We spent all last week looking at that. Here's the second idea this morning and the one we're going to chew on for a little bit. Tongues is the problem. In Corinth, tongues is the problem. I mentioned this, I think, last week or week before last, that other than Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19, other than that, uh, the gift of tongues is not mentioned, essentially not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture other than here in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, in this letter to the church in Corinth. That's it. That's the only place that it's mentioned. It apparently was not an issue in any other church. Uh, in all of Paul's letters, in all of Paul's writings, in all of Paul's travels, it apparently was not an issue in any of the other churches. But based on what Paul describes here, based on the description that he gives that we're going to read, and based on the restrictions that he is going to place on the gift of tongues. And we'll get to those. Clearly, he places restrictions on what they're doing. But based on the description and based on the restrictions that he places on it, clearly, tongues was a problem in Corinth. It was a problem. Now, we could, even as I'm starting here, we could ask this question, and, and we will get to them, what they actually are, but r right here from the beginning, we could ask this question. Why would Paul be restricting tongues in Corinth? Why would he do that? If God is the one who gives spiritual gifts, and if, as Paul made clear in chapter 12, all the gifts are profitable, all of them are, are useful and good for the body then why in chapter 14 would Paul suddenly be restricting this one particular gift? Why would he do that unless 
what they were practicing in Corinth was actually different from the biblical idea of tongues. In fact, I believe it was very different. I believe it was very different from the biblical concept of tongues. Remember, the ability to speak in a, in a language, in a, an actual language, but not a language that you should in any way know. You didn't naturally know, you didn't learn it, but you suddenly have the ability to speak in this language. That's, that's the model we see in Acts uh, chapter Two. So uh, it was a problem, and I want to give you some of the reasons that it was a problem. First, it was confusing. Corinth was confusing the church, uh, or tongues, excuse me, was confusing the church in Corinth. Let, let's read it together. Chapter 14, let me start in verse uh, 7. Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound... If they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning, no kind of actual language in the world. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. I, and I'm, I'm just asking, in all honesty, yeah, just out loud if you want or not, but is there any other way, having just read that that? Excerpt right there, verses 7 through 11. Is there any other way to understand what was just said other than Paul saying, y'all are just making noise? I mean, honestly, is there any other way to take that than the Apostle Paul saying, y'all are, are, are just making noise? So you too, if you, if you speak without clarity, I'm paraphrasing, if you speak without clarity... Who's going to know what you're, you're saying? It was confusing. It was causing a significant amount of confusion. Now remember, Paul hasn't been back to Corinth since this tongues phenomena started. He's getting this from, from very concerned people in the church who have written to him and are trying, apparently trying to describe to him what is going on and what is happening. Paul seems to allow for the fact that hey, there are a lot of languages in the world, and, and I don't know all the languages in the world. There, there are many languages in the world, but even if they were speaking an actual language, which I, I think the evidence is going to show they weren't, but even if they're speaking an actual language, Paul says, if nobody understands what you're saying, it, it's just causing confusion among the, among the whole body. It, it, it does, it's not, it, it, it's, what, what is the point? It was confusing. Here was, here was a, another part of the problem. It wasn't profitable. It wasn't beneficial to the body of Christ. Now watch what he said. We pick it up in verse 13. Y'all with me? Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now listen to what he says. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. 
Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted, he's talking about a, a lost person, a person without a relationship with Christ that's in the church that comes in, Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you're saying? For you're giving thanks well enough. You, you, you're, you, you're genuine, you, you really you mean this, for you're giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church... I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Pretty good disparity of numbers there. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Once again, we're coming back to this subject matter that has, has surfaced throughout this entire letter. It comes up again and again and again and again. And that is, what is best for the body of Christ? Keeps coming up in Corinth. Granted, partly because they were so divided in Corinth, he's trying to, he's trying to bring some unity to them. But it's always coming back to the idea, whether it's the church 2,000 years ago or the church today. What is best for the body of Christ? And, and Paul essentially says, there's, there's nothing about what you're doing that is profitable for the body of Christ. He, 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 he goes into this thing where he says, okay, let, let, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, let's, let's say I, 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 I pray in the Spirit. I pray with the Spirit. And then he says, what is the outcome then? What is the outcome then? The outcome uh, was added f by translators for clarity. Uh, literally, it, literally, it would read, what then? Or what the? Or what is that? You're praying in the spirit, but not with your mind? What is that? So he says, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray with my spirit. In other words, you're saying, that, man, I, I'm, not, I'm not just saying words. Even understandable words. I'm not just, you know, intellectually. No, my, my, my spirit is in this. I, I, I'm praying genuinely, fervently. I'm going to pray with my spirit, but I'm going to pray with my mind also. So that I understand what I'm saying, and the people around me understand what I'm saying, so they can, they can agree with me in this, in this prayer, in, in what I'm saying. They can join in, they can amen what I'm saying. And, it, and it's edifying to all of us. Otherwise, what's the point? And, and by the way, notice Paul adds, did you, know, you may have noticed in there, that Paul adds in there uh, about the, the music. He said, I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. He, th he throws that in there, which I believe is probably an indication that this, this Corinthian tongues, as we defined a couple weeks ago, this, what I believe was incoherent, nonsensical babbling, influenced by the oracles, which we also have already discussed, I believe that it, was, that it was making its way right over into their very worship experience itself, that it was becoming a part of the, of the worship experience itself. And Paul says, uh-uh, not me. No, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray in my, with my spirit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing with my spirit, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray with my mind also. I'm going to sing with my mind also. 
so that, so that it's edifying to me and to everybody else. By the way, Paul adds there in verse 18 when he throws this in, when he says, uh, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. He, he's simply saying that apparently, now Paul was an, was an educated, intelligent man. We know that he spoke at least Hebrew, uh, Aramaic, which is kind of a form of Hebrew, and Greek. He, he, he probably spoke other languages just that he had learned and, and knew naturally. Uh, so that could be part of it when he says he speaks in tongues. But I would surmise that God had probably at times given him the gift, the biblical gift of tongues, the ability to speak in other languages, which makes perfect sense, fits the Acts 2 model perfectly, because as Paul traveled around on his missionary journeys, he encountered people from all over different parts of the world who spoke all different kinds of language. So it certainly makes sense that God would give him the ability at times to speak in a language that he didn't necessarily know, but supernaturally had the ability to transmit the gospel. Remember, that was the original intent of the gift of tongues, to transmit the gospel to these people so that they could hear it and understand it. But as soon as he says that, here's this impactful statement. However... In the church, I keep hammering that, in the church, when the body is gathered, whether it's in here, whether it's a small group gathered, when the body is gathered, however, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. You you see what he's doing here? Do you see what he's, what he's, again, he's not just flat out saying, y'all, y'all don't need to be doing this, because he's leaving open the, the reality that God may still use biblical tongues in Corinth, and, and which would make sense. Corinth was this, this epicenter from sailors and merchants and people from all over the world who would come through there. So he's not, he's not just flatly, not, he, he doesn't say don't prohibit, he actually says don't prohibit tongues, but boy, as we're going to see in a minute, boy, does he throttle it back. Because what is he saying? It's what's edifying to the body. That's what matters. That's what ought to, on account. And then he adds, even in verse 20, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. The NASB correctly translates that to show that Paul actually uses two different Greek words to describe children. He, he, he uses a word that would, would describe a, a toddler, basically, you know, a two, three-year-old, whatever you consider a toddler, and he uses the word that would describe essentially a, a newborn. Don't be a toddler in your thinking, in, in the context of chapter 14, in your thinking on, on this tongues issue. Don't be a toddler in your thinking. Now, anybody that has been around a toddler for more than five minutes knows that a toddler has, has uh, one emphasis and one emphasis only, themselves. What, what I want to do, what I want, what I want to have, what I want to eat, what I want to do, whatever. Don't be a toddler in your thinking about this. Be an infant when it comes to sin. Man, be inexperienced, be naive, be an infant when it comes to, to sin. But when it comes to thinking, maturing as a follower of Jesus Christ, don't be don't be a two-year-old. Don't act like a two-year-old. Don't think that this is all about you and your personal experience because it's not. And listen, let me say this because I've got to move on. But listen, don't think that, that this subject of maturing in your faith and, and, and not making it about you, don't think that that's limited to just tongues. In the church today, so many times I, I, I see people making it about, well, well I, I prefer this, or I'd rather have this. I'm going to go to this church where they offer this, and this where they, listen, it may not be incoherent babbling, but it's still about the personal experience, and therefore, it's still wrong. It's about the body. 
It's about what is, what is profitable to the body of Christ. That's what Paul keeps hammering home. So, let, let me just get you right now at this moment just to stop for just a second to, to get off Facebook and, and whatever else for just a second and to, to look up at the screen and to see and answer this question. Am I growing up in my faith? Remember, he just said, don't be toddlers in your thinking. So to ask the, myself the question, am I growing up in my faith? To ask myself the question, am I more Christ-like, more committed to my walk with Christ? Am I more committed? And I hope you're asking yourself that question right now. Am I more committed to my walk with Christ? To ask the question, am I more concerned about what is best for me and mine? Or what is best for the body of Christ? Because that in itself is an indication of where I am spiritually. And if you think, well, I, I don't know, how do I, how do I measure that? How do I, how do I measure, how do I figure out if, if I'm maturing in my walk with Christ? You, you do just that. You measure it. You measure it. If you have or if you have raised children. You, you, ever, have that, you ever have that deal where on a door frame or a, a wall or something where you, you, you measure their ki- your kids as they're growing up, you get a ruler, and you stick it, and you put a line, and, and you say, oh, yeah, you, you, you've grown six inches from, from last year. And you do it again in six months or next year, and you end up with a bunch of marks on the wall, measuring up. You're measuring their growth. We can do the same thing spiritually. Am I more, uh, am I more committed to 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 acting more like Jesus would want me to act? Do I see more of the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in my... Now, you can measure that, folks. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all that sort of stuff. You, you can measure that. You can look at your life. You can honestly evaluate your life and say, am I, am I further in this process now than I was six months ago or, or six years ago? Where am I? In there? Am, am I? Do I have a better understanding of God's Word? Uh, do, I, do I treat my spouse more like Christ want me to treat them than I did last year. You understand what I'm saying? You measure it. You figure out, am I maturing in my faith? And if I honestly look at my life and I, just, and I say, you know what? I, I'm kind of I'm neutral on this. Then, then you honestly admit it. You ask God to forgive you of it. And you begin to take the steps to be proactive. And say, all right, all right. What do I got? I'm, I'm moving forward. I don't want to be a toddler in my thinking. I don't want to be tossed about, as Paul says somewhere else, by every wind of doctrine. I don't want to be, I want to be who Christ wants me to be. So tongues is the problem, and it was a significant problem in Corinth. Now, watch what, where this goes from here, because the last idea is this. Order is the prerequisite. Prophecy is the priority. Tongues is the problem. Order. That's the prerequisite for the body of Christ. Now, uh, we'll kind of read some of this as we go. I'm going to start with the last verse in the chapter, and then we'll work from there. In verse 40, he finishes up. This chapter closes with this. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Now, uh, let's talk about what this means, and then we'll talk about what this doesn't mean. One of the things this tells us is that things were not being done in an orderly manner in Corinth. 
Otherwise, there's no need for Paul to even bring this up. There's no need for Paul to even admonish them. Hey, everything's got to be done in an orderly manner if things were being done in an orderly manner. But clearly, things were not being done in an orderly manner. And Paul says all things must be done in an orderly manner. And that wasn't happening because tongues caused a distraction. We need order. We'll talk about what that's not, what that is. But tongues caused a distraction. Now, look at what he says in verse 21. What verse? In the law, it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. He's, he's borrowing from the prophet Isaiah, uh, if I remember right. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Here comes this this continued idea of this distraction that, that tongues was. Now, it's interesting that Paul says that tongues was a sign for unbelievers, which fits perfectly with the Acts 2 model, right? In Acts 2, uh, the un, these people that are not believers in Jesus Christ, they suddenly hear all these Galilean men speaking in these, these languages that, that they cannot possibly know, and so they know that this is a God thing. So Paul says that's what tongues is. Tongues is a sign to unbelievers that God is working in this situation and God's communicating to you the truth of his word. So he says it's a sign to to unbelievers. But then what's interesting is he turns around and he says, but if an unbeliever comes into your midst and hears y'all, what y'all are doing, I know I'm paraphrasing, southern style, but he comes in and hears what y'all are doing, They're going to think you're insane. That's a pretty strong indication, ladies and gentlemen, that what they were doing was not the biblical concept of tongues. Because he just said that tongues is a sign to unbelievers. But if an unbeliever comes in and they hear what you're doing, they're going going to think you're, you're insane. Paul seems to anticipate that unbelievers will come into a worship experience, and they should, folks. You and I should be trying to get our one to come in and be, but we should, we should be building relationships with people and, and trying to help people understand. We should be inviting people and having them come into the, to the church to, to experience this. But, but if they come in, he says, but if they come in and, and y'all are doing what, what y'all are doing, they're just going to think you're, you're, you're crazy. But if everybody prophesies then that unbeliever can come under conviction of the of the spirit of god through the word of god and can be drawn to god and saved by god because of the power of the word of god so he he says there the the secrets uh, of his heart are disclosed they're disclosed uh, to him I, i i couldn't tell you how many times in in my pastoral ministry i've had someone come up to me especially someone new attending, I've had someone come up to me and say, man, I, I felt like you were preaching right at me. 
I, I was wondering if somebody had been talking to you about me. I've had so many people. I, I feel like somebody, somebody's been talking. You've been, you've been watching me. You've been whatever. No. It's the Spirit of God using the Word of God to bring the conviction of God to draw people to God. That's, that's what it does. That's, that's, that's what was happening. That's what should happen. When unchurched people come in, they sit under the Word of God. The Word of God brings conviction through the Spirit of God, and people give their life to Jesus Christ. But, but this, this, this is not getting them anywhere. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's just a distraction. It wasn't profitable for the believers, because he already said that what was the priority for the believers? Prophecy, right? For edification, exhortation, consolation, that's what it was, and it wasn't, and it, and, and it wasn't helpful to the unbelievers. They just think you're crazy. They don't understand it at all. And here's the other problem. Tongues uh, also created disorder. Verse uh, 26. What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. It sounds like pretty much everybody was getting in on the act in Corinth, which is not necessarily a bad thing, by the way, but it's pretty clear it was a bit of a circus in Corinth. And the main culprit was this, this practice of tongues that they're doing in Corinth. And so, because of that, because of the confusion, the disorder, the, the, all the stuff that it was causing, here's what I want you to see. Paul is going to put some restrictions on this, this gift of tongues. Okay? And I want you to see these uh, before we leave here today. So let's start. He starts with this one. There's a limit on how many can speak in tongues. Remember, he doesn't want to just out and out forbid tongues because he wants to leave open the option that the Spirit of God may actually use biblical tongues in Corinth. So, he, so he's doing his best to throttle back what's going on there. There's a limit on how many can speak in tongues. He says there in uh, the first part of verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most... Three. So there's your numeric limitation right there. Pretty clear that Paul's saying one or two people, maybe on occasion, that, that seems like the exception, but maybe on occasion, three might speak in a tongue. So, so number, there's your first limit. Never more than three should be speaking in tongues, Corinthian church. Second limitation, there's a limit on when they can speak in tongues. Again, in verse 27, look what he says. And each in turn. Literally in the Greek, it's in succession. Now, you, you can just imagine if, if all the people in Corinth are participating in the gift of tongues, because again, it was, this, it was this identification of spiritual maturity. They saw it that way. If all people are simultaneously all speaking in, in tongues, you can imagine what that must have sounded like. Matter of fact, you don't have to imagine if you've ever been to a service where... Pentecostal or charismatic or type where, where tongues is, is practiced. If you've ever been in a situation like that, you know it can be a little freaky, a little, little un, unclear. And so, so what does he say? One, two, maybe at the most three, but never at the same time, always in succession. One, and then another, and then another. Not this, everybody... Now listen, I, that, that already this, those first two limitations are enough to, to squelch most of what is practiced in a lot of churches today. That, just those two limits there. But he's, he's got more. There's a limit on if they can speak in tongues. 
There's a limit if, on the, if they can even speak in tongues. Right there in the text. Look at it, last part of verse 27, verse 28. And one must interpret for those one, two, or three that are speaking, and they're speaking in succession. Somebody better interpret, but if there is no interpreter, remember that was supposedly a spiritual gift as well. I mean, it was a spiritual gift. If there's not an interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. He must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. By the way, he's not really saying that he's necessarily speaking to God. He's just saying, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to tell you, God doesn't, I, God doesn't need me to speak in another language to him. I, I'm just telling you, he just, he just doesn't. He just needs me to speak to him in, in my language more often. I mean, he doesn't need me to, but he would like for me to. You know what I'm saying? So one, two, maybe three, never altogether, all together, all in succession. And if there's not somebody there that, that has the gift of interpretation, that, that knows, can, can tell the people what you're saying, can interpret what you're saying, keep your mouth shut. That's what he says. And he's still not done. He's got one more. And it's a doozy. Look what he says. Go ahead, Tyler. Go on by that. I've asked a question. I asked our kids. Here it is. There's a limit on who can speak in tongues. There's a limit on who can speak in tongues. Y'all ready? Let's look at it. Verse uh, 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. I'm, that last part, he's, he's, just, he's, he's building his case on the biblical concept of, of the home anyway and, and God's design in the home. But, but the point is, women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, not permitted to speak in the church. <laughs> okay, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I want, I want you to understand this now. Watch. Because now, uh, I've already had some people email me during the week saying, man, you've got to tell me what 34 and 35 is, is about. It, it, it's right there. It's, it's right there. Here, here, here's what we know. Paul is not restricting women from speaking in the church. He's not. That was a man that amen that, I think. I think it was a man that amen that. Now, it sure sounds like you said, well, but you just read that women are not to speak. Paul is not restricting women from speaking in church. You know how I know? Ask me how I know. I know that he's not restricting women from speaking in the church because back in chapter 11, where he discusses uh, men's head, head being covered or not covered, women's head being covered or not covered, he had no problem back then, back there in chapter 11, with women praying uh, and or prophesying in the church. Back in chapter 11. He's got no problem. Now, we discussed the, what the whole head covering thing was all about. But the point is, in chapter 11, he's got no problem with women praying and prophesying in the church. And, and the context means publicly, in the public arena, praying and prophesying in the church. I, I don't think Paul has changed his mind from chapter 11 to chapter 14. No, no, I changed my mind. They ought to just keep their mouth shut all the time. He hasn't, he hasn't changed his mind. He's writing under the Spirit of God. So, so, you understand my, my rationale behind this? You understand the logic behind this? If he had no problem with women speaking in the church in chapter 11, then chapter 14 can't mean that he's forbidding women to speak in the church at all. It can't mean that. What it does mean, because it's right there in the, 
in the context. What it does mean is women were not to speak in tongues in the church. That's what it means because that's the context. That's what he's talking about. This whole speech, talking, that's what the whole thing is about. Now, I will say this. Some commentators, because needless to say, verse 34, 35 is a, is a bit of a hot, hot one to handle. And many commentators, therefore, have said, well, that, that doesn't belong in the original text. That, that was added in by some chauvinist later. Paul is probably a chauvinist too, but it was added in later. That, that wasn't even in, in the original text. I, I will tell you, there is no good textual or historical reason to doubt that this was, was not part of the original text. And if it's in the Word of God, it's in the Word of God, so you've got to deal with it. And if he's okay with them speaking in the church in chapter 11, he must still be okay with it in chapter 14. And so the only thing that's changed in chapter 14 is the context. And the context is this problem with the tongues. And it's tongues that he forbids women from doing in the church. Now, ladies, if that upsets you, before you get a rope and put together a lynch mob, let me give you some reasons why I believe the Apostle Paul restricts women from speaking in tongues in the church. And it has nothing to do with women being inferior or less than men in any way. Now, a man should have amen that. But the first reason, I believe, the first reason is this. It was the comparison to the oracles. It is a virtual certainty. It is a virtual certainty that the, that the oracles, and, and we've talked about that in the previous weeks, you understand, if you're here, you know who they were, what they did. It's a virtual certainty that they had an influence on the church in Corinth. It's almost impossible to believe that they would not have. As far as I know, the oracles, uh, and just if you weren't here, they, they were part of this Greek culture. They spoke predictions, they, fortune tellers. Uh, they spoke for God. People would go for their God. They would go to particular gods, uh, and they would ask about questions about their future. It was always, as far as I know, it was always women. We talked about the fact that Oftentimes it was in a drug-induced kind of state. But, but the point is, women in the church speaking in an, an incoherent, babbling sense, which is, which is what he seems to describe there. What is that? Women speaking in incoherent, babbling kind of sense would have immediately drawn a, a, a comparison to and a connection to the oracles. And I can't say for sure that this is a reason, but it makes sense to me that God would not want His church to be imitating or acting like or being associated with uh, uh, other gods and their practices of divination, fortune-telling, all that kind of thing. So I believe that that's part of the reason that it's restricted. But I think that there's another reason, and it's this. It is the characteristic of their emotions. Ladies, this is not a put-down. This is not a deficiency. This is not a weakness. This is simply a biological, physiological fact. Women, as a gender, are more emotional than the male gender, than men. Women are, as a general rule, more emotional than men. And thank God that you are. I know many women who wish that men could be a little more emotional. I know my wife certainly wished I could be a little more emotional at times. She didn't amen, so keep going. But thank God that you are emotional because it is, it is, your, it is your natural tendency to be more emotional. Listen, God created us equal, but he didn't create us the same. 
He didn't create us the same. And, and the characteristics that he gives to women, the characteristics that he gives to men are given so that we can fulfill who we are to be in Christ. And, the, and this characteristic, this tendency to be emotional makes you more empathetic. It gives you your nurturing qualities that, that, you, that you ladies have. It makes you compassionate. It allows you to be more understanding and forgiving and sacrificial than most men ever think about being. Ladies, y'all could have amen that. Right? I mean, y'all are. Thank God that you are more emotional than men are. But a characteristic of, of, of emotion also means that women are more susceptible to a, a, a setting or a situation where their emotions can be exploited. That's true whether you're talking about a dating situation or whatever it might be. But in this case, it would, it would draw them into this practice that was an emotionally driven practice. Now, if, if you don't believe me on this, uh, then, then if you haven't done this before, attend a service where the gift of tongues is practiced and see if not the vast, 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 vast majority of people participating in it are not women. They're genuine. I've said that a few weeks ago. It's not like they're fake. I'm saying that they are emotionally drawn toward that type of thing. And so, because this tongues thing was such an emotionally driven thing, Paul says, uh-uh, women, don't do it. Now listen, remember he's already said, him personally, I'd rather speak five coherent words than 10,000 in a tongue. So he's really restricting it for everybody. Not just women, he's really restricting it for everybody. But he's saying, particularly ladies, don't, don't get sucked into this. Don't go down that road. Here's the, way I, here's the way I would put it. Paul is trying to bring them to a biblical model of worship where God is glorified, the people are edified, and the flesh is denied. That's what he's trying to do, this whole thing. He's trying to bring them back. Y- y'all are focusing on this, on this tongues. Y'all are making this the priority. You're making this about your personal experience. No, it's about, it's about edifying the body. It's about what's best for the body. And, and through that process, God is glorified. That's where he's trying to, to bring the people to. I know i got to close, but let me say this. That I want to make sure you see that he also restricts even uh, prophecy. Real quickly, in, uh, in verse 29, I think it is. Look what he says. He says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one. See, he's got, I got, that's, that's okay. So that all may learn and, all, and may be exhorted, and the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. He, does, he puts a restriction on, even on prophecy as well. And I, I think I said last week, part of it may be a, a time thing. For you can all prophesy one by one. He says, let two or three prophets speak. But if a revelation is made, one, somebody, if, if somebody else, if God lays something on their heart or their... So in a life group, you're in a life group and, and, and your life group leader is, is leading and they're teaching something and they, and they say something and it triggers something in your mind because you've been in God's Word this week and you've been studying God's Word and it triggers something that you read in God's Word that week. Uh, you, 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 can, you, can, you can raise your hand, you can stand and you say, oh man, that, that reminds me, I was reading in God's Word this week. And you can edify the body as well by, by, by standing up participating in that. And Paul says when somebody does that, the other guy needs to be quiet. Let the other person speak. Because, because it can be profitable. But, he comes back to this idea. God is not a God of confusion. Can you bring that up, please? God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. That's where he's coming back to. Whatever you're doing, 
make sure that in the end that, 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 that you understand that God is not a God of confusion. And so, because he's not a God of confusion, then that verse 40 again, but all things must be done properly in an orderly manner. Properly in an orderly manner does not mean dull and in a stuffy manner. Properly in an orderly manner doesn't mean lifeless and emotionless manner. It doesn't. We don't have to be scared, quite honestly, the fact that, that men or women, that our God has redeemed us, saved us, it should fill us with joy. It should, it should move. There, there, there's an, there should be an emotional response to that. Listen, it's not that we should not have emotion it's that in our worship, but it's that emotion should not control our worship. That, that's the difference. That's what was happening in Corinth. It was all about the experience. And Paul says, no, that is not what it's about. It's about glorifying God, edifying the body, and denying the flesh. That's what it's about. And, did you notice in there, he said, past judgment, it doesn't mean necessarily in a, in a critical way, but it means discerning. If I know God's word and somebody says something that's not right, I, I ought to have the boldness to say, oh, hold on a minute there, preacher. Hold on there a minute, life group leader. Hold, there, hold on there a minute, friend that wants to share something on your heart. Years ago, I, I was, uh, when I was in seminary, I was invited to preach at this church somewhere. I truly, somewhere out in the country. It was, it was in North Carolina, I remember that. And I think Cindy was with me. And uh, it, it was just a one-time deal, they, pulpit supply or something like that. So they asked me to go out and preach. And uh, I was, of course, obviously excited about preaching anytime I could. And I showed up at the church, very nice people, best I can remember. And uh, just before I got up to preach, and they did all the singing, and just before I got up to preach, then a gentleman came and sat down, you know, on the platform, on the steps, and all the children came around. They had children's, you know, message. Church, some churches do that and have a little five-minute children's message. And, uh, and, he, and he began to give this message. And I'm sure he's a very nice young man. And he began to, and his message had to do with the fact that none of us are perfect and that, that we all, you know, things happen and we make mistakes. And, and, and he's talking about, he says, Boy, I, I make mistakes in my life. And, and Timmy, have you made mistakes in your life? Yeah. And Sally, have you made mistakes in your life? Yeah. Your parents make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Jesus made mistakes. And, and da 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 da. And he goes on uh, and talks about how, you know, God forgives us and God da 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 da. And, I, and I'm sitting there. And I'm thinking, did I, did I just hear what I think I just heard? Did that guy just say Jesus made mistakes? So then it's my turn to preach, you know. And I'm like, holy smoke. Do, you know what I did? Nothing. I started my message. I went right on through my message. Because I'm thinking, I'm just here one time. That guy, he's on staff here. He's, he's part of the thing. I can, and I went right on my message. To this day, I regret that I didn't step up and say something. Didn't say, no, whoa, 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 whoa. I just want to make something clear before I get into my message. I'm sure your uh, brother Tommy is a great guy, and maybe he didn't even mean what he said, but I just want to clarify something. Jesus did not make any mistakes. Jesus was the sinless Son of God. He, 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 was, he, he made no... I, I wish I had said that. that. That's what Paul's saying. Hey, it's okay to say, no, wait a minute. Now, you, you, I heard you say this. Now, sometimes it might be coming up after service and saying, now, Clay, I heard, did I hear you say Lucifer's a good guy? No, you did not hear that. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? It's, that's what we do. Why? Because what's it coming back to? What's for the good of the body? And it's not for the good of the body to just let Matt lead us in a song that's theologically off the rails. Now, he, Matt would never do that. But I'm, I'm saying, 
Even, even in our worship, if it's a song that's theologically off the rails, somebody needs to say, that is theologically off the rails. So, what are, so here we are, we're coming back to the body. It's always about the body. It's about what is best for the body. Listen to me. It's not, it's not that we're motionless, it's not that, but it's that, it's that we're in awe of this God who, who died for us, who's coming back to get us. Man, our worship ought to be awe-inspired. It'll be filled with joy and excitement at who our God is. But it shouldn't be, okay, maybe it's not a raucous football stadium kind of atmosphere. Maybe that's not church. But it shouldn't be a funeral home atmosphere either. An atmosphere where God is glorified, the people are edified, and the flesh is denied. We get that? That's a good, that's a good experience. That's a good service. And that's what we ought to be aiming for. Tongues or, or anything else that is, that is all, all about my personal experience? No. And that is so hard in our American context because we are constantly bombarded with Man, it's your life. It's your choice. It's your, you, you, you make whatever choices you want. It's, it's all about you. In our American context, we are bombarded with that. And that is the polar opposite of what we are called to as followers of Jesus Christ. Called to die to ourselves. To, to give our lives away so that we might find real life in Him. It's the polar opposite of what we're constantly bombarded with. And we have to grow up and mature in our faith and our knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that we make choices that honor Him and don't feed our flesh to God be the glory when we can do that. Confusion has no place in the church. Some of the believers in the Corinthian church were causing confusion with their practice of tongues. The Apostle Paul wanted to leave room for the possibility of the Spirit using biblical tongues there in Corinth, if needed, but he knew what they were doing was just causing problems. So he restricted their practice of tongues in order to stop the confusion. As Pastor Clay explained today, that doesn't mean our services should be dull or lifeless. However, everything we do should be done decently and in order. What's good for the body should always take precedence over personal experience. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting? If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Clay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice real 
illness, our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where they will find what they're searching for. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculture.church. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.